You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Before we get to the show, I just wanted to thank everyone who took the time to fill out our survey. Over the last few episodes, we've been running a survey just to give us some basic information, which does two things. One is if we're going to have advertisers, at least we can make sure those advertisers are of interest to our community. The other is it'll help me decide where to go with some of our next episodes and what is of interest to our community. Therefore, I'm going to reopen the survey. Go to earnandinvest.com slash survey. Again, earnandinvest.com slash survey. This will take you a few minutes. It's completely anonymous. It doesn't cost you anything, but it'll help us out here at Earn and Invest greatly. Thank you. My name is Mindy Jensen. My name is Scott Trench, and this is the Earn and Invest podcast. Hey, this is Doc G, and welcome back to the show. It's been more than a year since the pandemic put the housing market briefly on pause for several months last spring, but real estate has bounced back rather quickly. For more than 12 months now, low mortgage rates and the popularity of virtual work ignited by the pandemic have fueled a rapid increase in housing demand, especially in lower-density suburbs. Despite uncertain economic times, there has been a booming residential housing market. More existing homes were sold in 2020 than in any year since 2006. Many seasoned veterans are curious to know how long will this boom last or will it eventually come crashing down like in 2008. So far, the housing market continues to be sizzling hot, resulting in higher home prices and bidding wars for newly listed residences. The Federal Reserve is playing a key role to support the economy and housing market by keeping borrowing costs low for shorter-term loans. Amongst this chaos is the new home buyer. Less interested in the historic market and more excited to take their very first plunge into home ownership, the challenges to secure the right home at the right place in the right location is as daunting as ever. Today, we tackle these difficult conversations with Scott Trench and Mindy Jensen of BiggerPockets.com. Scott Trench is the CEO and president of Bigger Pockets. He has dedicated his career to helping ordinary Americans build wealth in part through real estate investing. Since joining Bigger Pockets in 2014, Scott has authored the best selling wealth building book, Set for Life, and joined Minnie Jensen as the co host for the Bigger Pockets Money podcast. Mindy Jensen has been buying and selling houses for almost 20 years, both as an investor and as a real estate agent. She loves real estate and is most passionate about taking an outdated house and turning it into a beautiful modern home. Mindy is the community manager for BiggerPockets.com and the co-host of the Bigger Pockets Money podcast. Scott and Mindy's book, First Time Homebuyer, The Complete Playbook to Avoiding Rookie Mistakes, hit the shelves last month. It was probably the worst real estate deal I ever made. It was when I bought my first house, or actually it was a townhome. I was living in St. Louis, and it was during residency. So I had a three-year residency for medicine. I knew that I was going to be in St. Louis in three years, and I didn't even particularly like St. Louis. So after renting for one year, my wife and I came up with the idea that we didn't like to pay rent anymore. So we were going to buy a house. Now, this makes no sense, given the fact that we we're going to move out in two years, but we did it anyway. And we did this great thing called the doctor's loan. See, at that time, you could get a loan with no money down. So we bought a house for $150,000. We had an 8% interest rate, and we lived there for two years. And lo and behold, when we went to sell, the market was as hot as could be. 
and we sold it for $200,000. So $50,000 profit over two years. We were lucky. And looking back, as I've gone further, learned about investing and learned about real estate, I realized that we should have never bought. It was a horrible decision. It was pure luck that we didn't lose a bunch of money. My first home buying experience was great, but not because of any knowledge or forethought on my part. What about you? Are you buying a house for the right reasons? Are you spending too much, too little? Should you rent instead? Mindy Jensen and Scott Trench are real estate investors, authors, and co-hosts of the Bigger Pockets Money podcast. Their book, First Time Homebuyer, The Complete Playbook to Avoiding Rookie Mistakes, dropped in March. Scott and Mindy, welcome back to Earn and Invest. Thank you Good for day. having us. Yeah, thanks for having us back. I'm so excited to have this conversation, especially because I should have had this conversation years ago, and I'm still amazed that I got out of that first home buying experience financially whole. Scott, let's start with you. Did you take your own advice for this book? Because if I read correctly, you are not a homeowner. You're currently renting. Is that true? That's right. Yes. I believe that housing is an expense, not an investment, and that the cheaper option between renting and buying has a lot to do with the timeline and how long you want to be living in wherever you are residing, or at least how long you want to own the property, like keep it as a rental, for example. And for our lifestyle, me and my wife decided that renting was the better option at this moment in time than buying. So that would have cost us 600000 or so to buy a condo, very similar to the unit we live in now, which is one of a four-unit townhome. And it was 2400 to rent. So we went ahead and rented instead. Mindy, can you believe this? Renting instead of buying? I mean, that doesn't go along with the American dream at all, does it? I know. He should be fired from bigger pockets. <laughs> mm. You can't be on the podcast anymore, Scott. <laughs> no, no. I didn't say he shouldn't be on the podcast. I still need him on my show, but he should be fired from bigger pockets because he's uh. a renter. No, I agree with his choice. And I was very surprised. My thoughts towards renting versus owning have changed dramatically in the last few years as I learn more about the debt load that people are taking. I think that I have always approached, so I've never bought a nice house. I've always bought a dumpy house at first because that's all I could afford. And then because once you fix it up, you can sell it for a lot of money. I didn't understand the phrase, I don't believe your home is an investment. Well, of course it's an investment. I'm making a lot of money every time I sell a house, but I'm not buying the nice houses. And I think that's a big, that overcoming that was huge for me. And then I was like, oh, well, yeah, if you're not going to stay there for a long time, you should sell. I was waiting for you to tell me in your introduction story that you had lost a ton of money. I was like, <laughs> what year was this? Because I remember the market in several different years. And I want to circle back to your introduction just for a moment, because you can't underline an audio comment, but I want to underline and highlight your comment. We were lucky. You absolutely were lucky. You could have very easily purchased that in 2006 and then tried to sell it in 2008, as uh, one of the three of us did, and discover that the market has changed slightly. And now the home that you paid so much for is worth nothing. There were people bringing, bringing cash to the table just so they could get out of home ownership. They had to buy their way out of home ownership. And that's a real possibility for a lot of people who are making snap decisions, rational decisions, emotional decisions based on the property that they walk in and fall in love with and don't run the numbers ahead of time. There's a lot of ways to get yourself into hot water. So I think that Scott, who doesn't plan to live in that area for a significant amount of time, is doing the right thing by renting instead of buying. Mindy just mentioned this idea that if you're not going to live there for a long period of time, that's almost a no-brainer, right? So I shouldn't buy, I should rent. Are there a few other no-brainers for not buying? Like, So a short duration of living in a place is one. What are some of the other ones? Well, I really think that's the big one there. I mean, there's, uh, there's also kind of obvious considerations around like, hey, it's prohibitively expensive or just an insane risk for me to buy at this moment in time. For example, maybe in, in a place like San Francisco, uh, you know, I'm going to have to per plop down well over seven figures and that's just unacceptable given my financial position at this moment in time. There can be other considerations like that. But I think 
the answer to that question will become very apparent when you're handed the framework around the rent versus buy decision. And maybe that would be a good place to start where when you buy a home, I think one of the most obvious things, not obvious things, one of the, the, the most important things that people don't see because it's not obvious are the closing costs associated with buying a home. So when you purchase a $400,000 home, you might pay 2% of that purchase price, $8,000 in various forms of closing costs. When you acquire the property across you know, inspections, appraisals, various other closing costs, loan closing costs, those types of things. And so you put to, if you put down 10%, 40 grand, you're you're already down eight. And then when you go to sell the property, you're gonna pay collect, you know, you pay another seven or eight percent in closing costs. The biggest portion of that is gonna be the fees, the commissions that you'll pay to the buyer and seller, buyer, buying agent and listing agent. And most people are not like they don't think through that because like when they buy the property, the sales proceeds typically are what pays the buyer and seller agents but you're going to have to pay those as the seller, right? And so if you put down $40,000 in a $400,000 home, you're out $8,000 right away from the buyer closing cost. And if you turn around and sell it, you're out another, what was what that? $24,000. Did I do that math right? Eight times, four, four times eight. 32. Yes. 32. Sorry. <laughs> wow. A little slow this morning. So 32. So I'm out, I'm out all $40,000 right away. So it's going to take me a number of years through appreciation and loan amortization to make that up. Right. And so is the duration, the, the time for the, the, the only factor there? Absolutely not because there's ways to play the game to offset those costs. If you are an agent that might slow down your timeline because you're going to, you're going to, not have to pay a portion of those and you represent yourself. If you are willing to rehab or significantly upgrade the property the way Mindy has done many, many times as a live-in flip, now you can add much more value in a year or two than the the cost of those closing costs. And that will, that will dra- dramatically accelerate your timeline. So it's kind of like understanding that framework and those closing costs. And, that, and then you can make decisions to make the odds of buying a home that much better than renting. So it makes sense. There's lots of different variables. So you can't just look at duration, et cetera, and say, boy, that's going to be it. Because as you were saying, maybe you're going to do a live and flip. Maybe you're going to Airbnb part of it. There there are ways you can make up for that. Mindy, as Scott is talking about- Eight times four. Eight times four. I hope my dad doesn't hear this one. All right. I'm calling your dad and telling (laughs) him this. We're going to play him this audio. All right. Sorry. Mindy, as Scott talks about the different costs associated with closing, et cetera, I'm reminded of the introduction to the book, and you talk about some typical American homebuyers named Alex and Shelby. Nice names, by the way. I wonder where you got those from. Wait, wait, wait. Um, I, so, so I don't know where we got those names from. Someone, some, someone has said like we had a smart reference with Alex and Shelby, and I don't, I don't like, I, just, I don't know. It's just two names. What's the reference from? Mindy, I feel like I know an investor named Alex uh, who has a close friend. Oh, named do you Shelby. know Alex? Yes. It is so. It actually oh, isn't. Yeah, okay, yeah, we have two Alex fr- Felice have two and Shelby. Oh, yeah. oh, what's Shelby's last name? It actually isn't. I just like the name <laughs> Alex, and I like the name Shelby subconsciously. Oh. <laughs> I thought this or maybe was like a I'm TV trying to ship them or something, but yes, we know them. Yeah. Okay. All right. Fair enough. So a- anyway, anyway, came from. back to the point you introduced us to Alex and Shelby and it hits me that, you know, the part of the big problem with them is that they buy too much house. And when I'm listening to Scott talk about all the costs involved that sometimes people don't pay attention to, is that a common issue? Are we as Americans buying too much house on a regular basis? Yes. How much house do you need? And, you know, COVID, I'm going to put an asterisk next to that, yes, because COVID has highlighted the need for different spaces for people. When you're crammed on top of each other, it really is difficult to just breathe sometimes. We had a house that we just sold. It was four bedrooms and three bathrooms, and it was weird, weirdly laid out. So it would not have been a good COVID house. We moved into this current house that we're in and there's a separate office for me that is two doors separate me from my children, which is good. Two doors in the hallway, but there are separate spaces. We've got this weird split level and there's actually four levels with the basement. So there are separate spaces. Everybody can be on their very own 
level away from everybody else and do their own thing while still being connected, but having their own space. So, but I think this house is like 2,300 square feet or something. It's not huge. In American standards, it's not huge. I should say, if you have any listeners from other countries, they're like 2,300 square feet. That's a mansion. And, but in general, yes, people buy too much house because they get qualified by their mortgage broker, who, by the way, makes money off of them. The more money they borrow, the more money the mortgage lender makes. So they call up their their lender. Hey, how much can I qualify for? The lender runs through all the numbers and says, you can qualify for up to $500,000. And the up to is in very, very tiny type or you know they whisper it or whatever because people don't really hear that. They hear the 500,000. Oh, I got to go look at $500,000 houses. Well, no, you don't. Yeah, I could afford much more than I have purchased, but I don't want the payment that comes with it. I don't need that much house. I don't, frankly, if I pay so much for it, then I'm not going to be able to do anything to it and force that appreciation. I think the biggest problem around this is that people don't understand that housing is an expense not an investment. And that the more you buy, the poorer you are, the less money you'll have. And that's true regardless whether you rent or buy. And it's true the bigger that you go in either case. So the, the reason that your house is an investment for most people or why it's a major source of net worth is because they buy the house, they pay two, $3,000 a month for 30 years into it. They invest, I mean, what is that? $36,000 if it's 3,000 a month for 30 years that's over well over a million dollars and they're left with a you know close to a million dollars at the end of that right and in their in their home equity it's not it's not an investment it's the only it's just they're putting so much cash into it that that's where they're doing that so the less house you buy the better off you are and i think that there's a lot of people out there who just don't understand this very very basic fundamental concept that housing is an expense not an investment Scott said, the less house you buy, the better off you are. And again, that needs an asterisk because there are, you know, this, this is like the balancing act. Do I buy a very little bit of house, a starter house, and then move on later? Well, again, now you're looking for another house. So you have the closing costs for the purchase, I'm sorry, for the sale of your starter house that is no longer big enough for you. And the closing costs for the purchase of your new, bigger, better forever house. I hate that word forever house, because you probably won't be there forever. You'll probably be there for five to seven years. You can plan, but the best laid plans, what is that? The best laid plans go to waste or the the road to hell is- God laughs. (laughs) Yeah, there we go. And the road to hell is paved with good intentions or good plans or whatever. Maybe that doesn't apply. Anyway, Mm. so you, it's, it's a balancing act. Well, I don't really want to spend all that I can afford, but I don't want to buy a one bedroom shack that I know I'm going to outgrow. So that's another thing you have to consider when you are making a purchase. How much house am I going to need? Do I really want to have children. I'm currently single and have no plans of getting married ever. Well, that doesn't mean you're not going to. I'm, I have two kids and I want to have seven more. Well, don't buy a two bedroom house then because that's probably not going to fit your needs and you're going into it in a bad, you're not approaching it correctly. So, you know, really think hard about what you are planning for. And then what happens if you have two kids, you want to have seven more, and then you don't, you don't need a nine bedroom house. So it really is a balancing act for what you're, what you're doing. But yeah, in general, buy the smallest amount of as much house as you need. Scott, is this a generational thing? I feel like the baby boomer generation and certainly some of the Gen X generation kind of looked at it as stretch for the most house you can get live in it a long time, allow appreciation, and then that'll become a big part of your net worth. Now, you've already told us that you should really look at it as expense and not an investment because in the end, maybe it's not a very good investment. The returns aren't great. But is it even more magnified for millennials? Is there something about the younger generations that makes it even less of a good idea than it was for the baby boomers? I think that's hard to say, but I think that I would guess that millennials are buying homes later um, in life than 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 previous generations. Will they stay there for 
as long. I don't know. But my, my belief is that the goal in life is not necessarily to buy that home and, and live there for 30 years and pay it off with that. It's to maximize freedom and mobility and optionality and, and life experiences and those types of things. And in, I think a lot more, many millennials agree with that mentality to some extent um, along some sort of spectrum and that the buying the home is a clear the buying the biggest, nicest home you can qualify for that stretches you to your financial limits is a, in clear violation of that principle of, of moving you to, towards the freedom, along the freedom spectrum to some degree. Mindy, let's talk about freedom. Your chapter two, I mean, one of the first chapters in your book is understanding exit options. I think that's a little controversial. When you're talking about buying a first home, you're saying, no, wait, Let's first think about how you're going to get out of that home. What made you decide to put that chapter so early in the book? Because it is so important to your entire purchase. Well, I'm a real estate agent. I help a lot of people buy houses and we'll walk into a house. And even when I first start working with someone, I don't know them. We're just starting out. We'll walk into a few houses. Even if I've told them, Hey, this house backs up to a rather busy, busy street. It'll be difficult to sell later. Oh, we still want to see it. We really like the inside. Let's go see it. Cause I want you to hear it. And you can't hear a picture. We go inside. We're walking around. Wow. This is really beautiful. Let's walk in the backyard. Try to have a conversation as the semis are whizzing past the back. And, oh, this is where you're going to spend a lot of time. No, you're not. You're never going to use this backyard ever. So, that aroma of the dog food factory. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Our office was across the street from a dog food factory, which a couple of weeks ago caught on fire. Oh, you thought it smelled bad before. <laughs> Scott wasn't in the office that day. I'm like, oh. Oh, I'm vomit. sorry. I missed it. <laughs> anyway, I digress. There are a lot of things you need to think about. And in this market that we are currently in, it's hot, hot, hot. People are buying anything they can get their hands on. It's actually a bit of a desperation grab in some cases, in my opinion. There are houses in my neighborhood or in my city that back up to the train tracks. The train is active, runs past their house 10 to 15 times a day, and their fence and then the, the train track. I mean, there's no space. There's no buffer. And that train is loud. When you are not selling in as hot a market as we are in right now, you will never get rid of the house that backs up to the train tracks. You're going to have to take a huge haircut when you sell it, if you can even sell it at all, because who wants to live by a train? Nobody who's ever lived by a train before. Maybe. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that was one thing. We, we discovered the wonderful, nice train that rolls past our place, like eight blocks away, but you can still definitely hear it at 2 a.m. And luckily, we rent. So even with a lot of this research, you can't figure that out. Scott is a renter and maybe didn't realize that's how I also ended up next to a train. I didn't know that there was a train there and I moved in and I'm like, what is that sound at three o'clock in the morning? Every single morning. It was horrible. <laughs> it's just like so an earthquake. Yeah. Scott probably won't renew his lease. Or if he renews it once, he won't renew it twice. It's not that bad. It's far enough away that it's not, it's not a huge deal. So I'm trying to make a point here, Scott. Yeah. Okay. You're ruining my point. But when you like if you even if you buy it, oh, I don't have to live there. I'm gonna buy it as a as a rental. Well, your tenants are gonna move out every single year. They might even break the lease. So back to the whole question 20 minutes ago that you asked me. Why do we put this in the front? Because there are things that you need to consider before you purchase a property. We have several considerations. Number one, how long are you going to live there? We keep bringing that up because that's really important. All that money, it's going to cost you to buy and sell the house. And you could lose money just buying it and selling it two years later. I actually bought a house once and lost $13,000, happily lost $13,000 because I moved in, didn't know the neighborhood. I was moving to a new city. I hated it. We hated it so much. Two weeks after moving in, we said to each other, you want to move back to Wisconsin? You have to take this into consideration. There are basically three ways to exit a property. You or three ways for your property ownership to end. You either buy it and live there forever, and then you die and pass along to your kids. You buy it and turn it into a rental or you force appreciation and then sell at a profit. 
you either live in the property, you rent it out, you keep it as a rental, or you sell the property. And ideally, you sell it at a profit, but it is still an exit option to take an enormous loss. It's just that we don't we don't want to do that. <laughs> um, yes, so yes. That'd be my only caveat with what Mitty said. But yeah, it's you may not sell it at a profit. And so if the 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 goal when you're buying the property, I think, is to maximize the the positive side of those three outcomes. Can you buy a place that meets all three criteria if you're doing things really, really well, where you're gonna be happy you'll live there happily ever after until the end of your days? And that will make money as a cash flowing short or long-term rental. And that will make money for you if you sell it net of those closing costs and that big hurdle I discussed earlier that you have to overcome. Let's take a break. Scott Trench and Mindy Jensen's book, First Time Homebuyer, The Complete Playbook to Avoiding Rookie Mistakes, hit the shelves last month. I'm Doc G, and this is Earn and Invest. All right, so most of us know the bad news already. If you were using Mint as a budgeting app, it has shut down. But the good news is there's something better, and it's called Monarch Money. I started using Monarch Money myself about five months ago, and I knew immediately that I liked it more than any other budgeting app I had ever used. For one, it focuses on collaboration. This is easy to share with your spouse, your partner, your financial advisor. And it's aspirational. Not only can you look at your current budget, but what do you want to buy? What do you want your goals to be? You can focus on those in Monarch Money. It's the next generation of personal finance apps. Monarch is a top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Furthermore, you can create custom budgets, track progress toward financial goals, and collaborate with your partner, and now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash earn. Again, that's monarchmoney.com slash E-A-R-N. What I like about this app is it's intuitive, easy to use, quick to sign on. It's collaborative, as we talked about. It's customizable. The idea is you can use this app the way you want to use it. And the reason why is the Monarch Money team is customer focused. They are focusing on you, me, and all the other people who want to use this app to live a better financial life. After trying out Monarch Money for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners of this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com earn. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash E-A-R-N for your extended 30-day free trial. Wish you were in early on some of the best-performing IPOs of 2019 and 2020? Our crowd investors were, and now you can join them in what's next. With our crowd, accredited investors have access to invest directly, easily, and most importantly, early. Our crowd investors have benefited from our crowd companies IPOing like Beyond Meat or being bought by companies like Intel, Nike, Microsoft, and Oracle. Our crowd's investment professionals leverage their extensive network to review some of the most promising private companies and startups in the world. Right now, you can become a part of our crowd's investment in Launchpad, revolutionary AI-powered autonomous manufacturing that incorporates 3D printing to efficiently combine multiple materials into complex products. Launchpad is backed by Idealab, the startup incubator co-founded by famed VC Bill Gross that has launched over 150 companies ranging from hardware and robotics to clean tech. You can get in early on Launchpad and other unique opportunities at rcrowd.com EAI. If you're interested in investing, you need to join rcrowd. The rcrowd account is free. Just go to ourcrowd.com slash EAI. Let me reintroduce you. Scott Trench and Mindy Jensen both work for BiggerPockets.com, where they help ordinary Americans build wealth through real estate. Their book is titled First Time Homebuyer, The Complete Playbook to Avoiding Rookie Mistakes. So Mindy, you kind of make an important point. I mean, thinking about your exit options are one way of protecting yourself. You even said that right now is kind of a desperate market. I guess one way to solve that is not to buy now, right? To put it off until you're not in a desperate market. But a lot of people want to buy a home when they want to buy one. How do you go about protecting yourself so that you don't make one of these bad decisions, right? So think about exit options as one. But what else can we do in these hot markets where you might have to make an offer 
very quickly after seeing a property. Okay. Can I take this one? You can take this one. All right. So I, I have a, a, a little, I, I, I like this. I like this formula a, a lot for buying the, the home. First, you sit down with your spouse or you do this yourself and you write down exactly what you want. Very simple exercise, but you say, I want three beds, two baths, 2000 square feet, 1950s or later build these neighborhoods, two car garage, whatever it is, you know, I rec- we recommend the at least the second toilet in the house. That's really good for relationships and those types of things. But just write down exactly what you want in a two paragraph sentence, you know, and be reasonable and, and and determine what what's a want and what's a need and what's going to really be a deal breaker and what's not. And then you go in and you say, "Great, what is what is selling on the market right now?" Because when you pull up Zillow or Redfin or you look at active listings with your realtor right away at the beginning of the process, your, your real estate agent right at, the, right at the beginning of the process, you are going to get terrified by the listings. Everything that's active, because because the good properties in, in today's market, everyone knows this at this point, right? Go very quickly. They're not they're not there for very long. If it's a great property at a good price, there's going to be a bidding war. Or there's going to be a, it's not going to last for six weeks in the market. So when, when you look at the market, the active listings are going to tend to be the overpriced properties or properties where there's something horribly, horribly wrong with it which is going to terrify you. And the next time a even okay property is going to come on the market, that's the one you're going to feel like is the good deal. And that's the critical mistake that people make. The second thing you need to do is look at the sold listings. Just completely ignore what is currently for sale on the market and look at everything that's actually transacted in the last 90 to 180 days. That is what is actually happening in your market. And what I would recommend then is narrowing your scope and to give about 10 or so properties that have sold in the last six months that meet all of your criteria and that you think are good deals that are, that are the best properties at that price range with those criteria in your market and then go drive them. Just go like, you don't have to, you can't tour them. Someone's probably living in them, but you just go drive past them and see if like, like matches the gut check. And you're like, Hey, yes. Barring a catastrophe in the foundation or the the roof being like crazy, you know, hanging off or some, some sort of gotcha in the inspection process. I would have bought all 10 of those properties and been happy with my purchase. Great. Now, you know, now, first of all, you're getting yourself out of the fantasy land that a lot of homeowners get into because this is going to tell you what's real, right? If you're, if I I also want the 6,000 square foot home in downtown San Francisco for $400,000, not there, right? So this will get you out of fantasy land and get you grounded in reality. The second thing to note is that if, if you like this formula, you've got 10 properties in the last 180 days that have actually sold, that meets your criteria. That means that one property on average is selling every two and a half weeks that meets your criteria. So this tells you that your strategy of going and touring homes on a reactionary basis is not a good one. You need to go fishing and your timeline might take three, six months before you get a deal, right? If there's 10 good deals, you might have to offer on two or three of them, lose them, and then get the fourth or fifth one. And so you have to have a very patient timeline. And so this is another key component is don't put yourself in a position where you have to make an artificially constrained choice based on your lease expiring or your move. Go rent short term for a little bit, you know, in in, in some sort of like temporary housing or, or call your landlord and ask to go month to month and pay the extra 150 bucks for the privilege of going month to month. That is, will enable you to make a much better decision on a several hundred thousand dollar stakes bet at the cost of just a few hundred bucks a month. It's, 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 it's a, an incredible investment return, in my, in my opinion, on that. And so then what you have to do, with, once you set this up, is you say, okay, great. I know exactly what I would have bought, when it's going to come on the market. Agent, real estate agent, send me all the properties that meet these criteria in real time the moment they're on there. That's, a, that's an automatic feature of most MLS systems that, they, that your agent can easily set you up for. And then when the property hits, you take a look and you, if it's two o'clock in the afternoon when that property hits the market, you're canceling your evening plans and going and, and seeing that property and preparing to make an offer that evening. That's the uh, calmly prepare to act aggressively part of this, right? Which, which Mindy always likes it when I say that. But that's that's the strategy, right? I'm not making a rush decision. I'm not making a hasty decision. I'm making an instantaneous decision because I've already, in a period of hours or months, made the decision about what I'm going to buy. And I just react when a property of the type that I'm looking for hits the market. To the outsider, it looks like he is jumping on a deal. 
but he's not jumping on a deal. He's done the research. You are not ready to buy a house today because you decided today you need to buy a house. You are ready to start learning the market, which can be done in any time period, up market, down market, hot market, slow market. You can learn the market. And I don't believe our current market will last. I believe that more and more houses will start coming on the market. If for no other reason, Doc, your neighbor just sold their house, they listed it at what you consider to be an absurd amount of money and got $100,000 over their absurd asking price. Of course, you're going to list your market or your house because you've been toying with the idea anyway. I think all of these people are going to start seeing this and start flooding the market with houses. And flooding is a loose term. I don't think it's going to be flooded with houses, but I've already started seeing more and more options on the market. I mean, more and more is relative term. When you're talking about looking up properties that have sold already, knowing the market, et cetera, it sounds to me like a lot of work and due diligence. I mean, isn't that the whole purpose in getting a real estate agent? And I would argue the same thing, like when it comes to affordability, isn't that part of the lender's job to help you understand what's affordable? No. I mean, yes to the agent part, sort of, and no to the lender part. The lender wants you to borrow as much money as you can because they make a commission, which is based on the amount of money that you are borrowing. It's not a matter of whether they're good people or bad people or anything like that or you know all those types of things. It's just know the incentives of these parties. The lender makes more money with the bigger loan right? A a four times larger loan is four times more profit. The agent makes money when properties transact. The bigger the house, the bigger the commission, the faster the transaction, the faster the commission. So the best agents are the people who sell the most homes at the highest price in in the shortest timelines, right? And that's just what the incentives are. It's not, doesn't mean that they're working actively against your interest. It's just, that's their interest. And so you have to kind of like be aware of that as you're working with these folks, that that's what they're looking to do. So Mindy, you do your due diligence. You learn what you want. You learn what the market is willing to give. You jump on a property and go under contract. Is all the work done then? I mean, is that the end of the game? Yep. You're done. No, there's, that's just the beginning. (sighs) The third part of the book is the how a transaction works part of the book. And I wanted this to be a part of the book because there are so many people out there who have no idea how you buy a house. They don't know that closing costs exist or that they exist in such large amounts. They aren't aware of home inspections or they are loosely aware, but don't really know how to handle it. There's just a lot of things that you need to know to make the best decision. You're going to spend a thousand dollars on inspections and that is totally fine. You should spend a thousand dollars on inspections unless you're leveling the house completely and starting over from scratch. You should get a home inspection. You should, you'll have to pay for an appraisal. The lender will make you pay for an appraisal and that's okay. You want the house to appraise at what you're paying for it. You don't want to come into a house underwater. I paid a million dollars for this house that's only worth 500000 Who would do that? Why would that be a smart decision for you unless there are extraneous circumstances? But we're not talking about those people. We're talking about the first-time homebuyers who should absolutely not be paying a million dollars for a $500,000 house. There's a lot involved in buying a house. And you know, back to the question about the agent, shouldn't you wait? shouldn't you let your agent do all of this work for you? Your agent can help you with a lot of things. They can certainly provide you with a list of what has sold recently. You give them all your criteria and say, hey, how many of these have sold in the last 180 days? That's like a four second process for me. I open up my system. I punch all the things in. Blam, here's a big list. I send it to you. And then you can go through and see all of the things. And that's a really helpful thing. But your agent doesn't know what you want until you tell them. Your agent isn't going to make your payment for you ever. So you shouldn't let them dictate what you are buying. You should tell them what you want and ask for their guidance based on their experience in the market. And the same with the lender. The lender can tell you what you're approved for, but you ultimately make the decision 
what is the payment I want to make? Because again, your lender is never going to make your mortgage payment for you. It's an important point, I think, because people want a hands-off approach because they've never done this before. But clearly, if you want the process of home buying, especially the first time, to go in the right direction for you, you've got to know what you're talking about. Some of that comes from experience. So for a first-time home buyer, they don't have that experience. Tell us about your experience with home inspection. Did you forego a home inspection once, Mindy, on your own property and suffer the consequences? I sure did. Um, I Well, I don't know that I suffered the consequences. Everything was actually intact. I'm trying to think. I've bought a lot of houses. This was, okay, this is the house that we just sold. And we did, we did not do a home inspection. It was a Fannie Mae home path foreclosure. And Fannie Mae wanted to put owner occupants in the home rather than investors. So there was a time period that only owner occupants could make an offer on the house. And we got there just after that time period ended. So we were competing with a, an investor to buy this house. And they chose our offer because we were owner occupants. I don't think we were even close to the other person's offer. But we didn't think that we could ask for anything to be fixed. So we didn't have a home inspection. I mean, we went through it with a friend who's, you know, does a lot of construction and went underneath and all the pipes were connected. That's a concern that the copper pipes could have been stolen. And we had, I think we had all the utilities turned on and everything worked. It didn't have any appliances. Like we kind of knew what we were getting into, but we didn't check for permits. And the home had a rather large addition that was unpermitted. And we discovered this when we went into the permit office to get our own permit to discover that there was no permit and the entire structure in the back that we were planning on building on top of didn't meet setbacks and hadn't been permitted. We didn't know what sort of foundation it had on it. So we couldn't get any sort of approval to build on top of it until we dug around the perimeter of the foundation to see what sort of supports were there. And we couldn't build directly on top of it. We had to follow the setbacks. Um, my city is actually really, really, really generous and allowed us to bring it up to code. There are other cities near me that would have made me rip down that whole extra structure, which was probably 50% of the footprint of the house. Wow. That, that is a major problem. If for no other reason than issues like this, an inspection makes a lot of sense. I can tell you a story about an inspection that I had that did save me a lot of money. We were going to buy a condo and we had the home inspection. It's a condo. Like what could go wrong? We can see all the inside stuff. And the, the home inspector casually mentions, oh, this exterior might be EFIS. Oh, I've never heard that phrase before. What is EFIS? And he said that's it's fake stucco. EFIS is exterior insulation and finish system. It is a sort of a fake stucco. The exterior is waterproof, but if it's not installed correctly, water can get behind it, has no way to get out, and starts collecting mold and growing mold. And this was an area of the world that was not a dry area. It was the Chicagoland area. They have a bit of humidity in the summer. And he started telling us about this product and I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. Let's go look. Let's go do some, some homework. So, you know, my husband, he is quite the researcher and he went down this rabbit hole of EFIS. And if you, if you look it up, you will find all sorts of horror stories about mold that has decimated houses. They had to be completely destroyed and rebuilt. So we decided we did not want to get involved in that. Yeah. Your home inspection isn't just to tell you that the wiring is outdated or the, you know, oh, look for this or maybe check that or have a structural engineer look at this crack. Like there's, there's a lot of that in a home inspection report, but you can really, really put your financial future in jeopardy by buying the wrong house. Yeah. And I, I've read this in the book and I've heard this elsewhere and, and certainly done this with buying some of my investment properties is when it comes down to brass tacks, you know, you ask your home inspector, would you buy this house or would you allow your parent to buy this house? And their answer to that question can be incredibly telling. Scott, up to this point, we've been talking about 
being under contract and what you should do. Let's talk a little bit about what you shouldn't do. I guess this is not a good time to go out and buy a new luxury car. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, yes. You you don't want to do things like changing careers right before buying your home because that can impact your financing. You don't want to be disrupting your financial position. I think a strong financial position for buying a home has to involves having the down payment, the anticipated repairs that you're going to make. So let's say the down payment's $30,000. You anticipate 7,000 in repairs. You should have that plus a 10 to 15, ideally $15,000 reserve for the stuff that you're not planning on fixing because that is one of the joys of homeownership. If you have the reserve in a after you know following a purchase you're going to call a major repair like a roof um, or a fridge or a kitchen update a capital expenditure if you do not have the reserve you're going to call it a disaster and so that's the that's the difference there you want to be in the capital expenditure group there prepared for those types of things so i think that's that's right yeah don't don't buy make any weird large purchases that are going to you know especially not things that are financed they're going to attract your lenders thing this is not a time to go opening up many many credit cards but those are very tactical basically don't change careers Build up a strong financial position. Don't blow it in the in the weeks leading up to the home purchase from the financing side. Don't buy anything but gas or groceries from the time you put the offer on the house to the time you close. Yeah, many that people sounds don't. Like somebody's an agent. Uh, <laughs> but, yeah, <laughs> I wouldn't go that far. But I think I think yeah. Generally speaking, the, more, the closer you get to that, the better. I would go that far. And I would say if it's not gas or groceries, talk to your lender before you make the purchase. There, oh, there are more real estate agents than I care to think about who have stories of clients who blew their mortgage because they went out and charged a whole house full of furniture the week before yeah, closing. Don't buy the furniture before you close. That's true. And if you, you know, yeah. but in all seriousness, if your car breaks uh, down and you need a new car, talk to your lender first. Maybe it is a smarter financial move to go rent a car from rent a wreck than go purchase a car right before closing. Yeah, there's no guarantee that the lender will actually come forward with the money they have until the very end to deny a loan. I think people don't realize that. Ooh, ooh, I want to underline that too. There is no guarantee until the day of closing when they send the money to the title company, that's when there's a guarantee. Let's take another break. Scott Trench and Mindy Jensen's book, First Time Homebuyer, The Complete Playbook to Avoiding Rookie Mistakes, hit the shelves last month. I'm Doc G, and this is Earn and Invest. Here on Earn and Invest, we often talk about real estate, but we're really a podcast about finance in general. But if you ever want to go to a place to talk real estate and financial independence, I suggest the Real Estate and Financial Independence Podcast with Coach Carson. Here, Chad, also known as the coach, has two different types of episodes, one in which he, as the expert, teaches you the tips and tricks to using the real estate asset class. He also has episodes where he interviews guests, real-life examples, proof of concept of how you can use real estate to get to financial independence. It is a wonderful podcast, and I highly suggest it. Just go to CoachCarson.com. Again, that's CoachCarson.com, the Real Estate and Financial Independence Podcast. You won't regret taking a listen. Let me reintroduce you both. Scott Trench and Mindy Jensen both work for BiggerPockets.com, where they help ordinary Americans build wealth through real estate. Their book is titled First Time Homebuyer, The Complete Playbook to Avoiding Rookie Mistakes. So, Scott, let's round up this conversation. You know, this is called The First Time Homebuyer, your book, but is the process any different if this is your second, third, or fourth house, if you've been kind of on the merry-go-round before? I don't think so. I think that you're probably a little bit more comfortable with the inspection process, you know, and and what to expect after going under contract. But I suspect that there's a lot of people who still, even on their second or third homes, don't really understand the framework of housing as an expense, not an investment, and those type those types of things. So I think it applies to everyone. But you know, we we like to get creative with our titles here at Bicker Pockets. Mm-hmm. So you know, that's why we went with the the first time home buyer. That's 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 what we wrote it for, yeah, <laughs> specifically I- with in mind. 
I have to say that I've bought in several homes as well as investment properties. And I found that there was a lot of helpful information there that I hadn't seen so succinctly put into one place. So I definitely got value out of it. Although I'm on my, you know, fourth, fifth, sixth, depending on how you look at it in investment properties. Mindy, this is not regular times now. We've talked a little bit about COVID, the pandemic. Does any of that change the process? I mean, is it the same regardless of what's going on in the current climate? Not only does none of this change the process, it doesn't change the process if you're buying the house as an owner-occupant or if you're buying the house as an investor. The process is always the same. And right now, you are seeing people waiving their inspections in their offers. They are agreeing to cover any appraisal gap, meaning they offer 450, but it's only appraising at 425. They'll bring $25,000 to closing. My advice doesn't change. Don't cover the appraisal gap. If it doesn't appraise for what you're offering or for what you're paying for it, then don't pay that much for it. And you may lose a property or two by not offering those. And that's okay. You're not here to win the bidding war. You're here to make a smart purchase. Scott, it really begs the question. The the market seems so hot. Do you think we're in the midst of a housing bubble? I think that it's really hard to determine that. I know Mindy thinks things will will soften up a little bit, but I, I think that it's it could go either way. I think that with interest rates very low, the payment matters more than the price to most homeowners and most landlords because you can get the same rent with a lower interest rate. You get more cash flow. You, you can afford more house. So interest rates being very low spiked a lot of things. You know, I've seen some studies that suggest that set many markets are way overpriced if interest rates are 5%, but that they might still be underpriced at a 2.8 or 3% interest rate. So you could see a spike this year just as easily as you see a a drop and it's got you got to be very careful about waiting until the market softens because what does that mean and in let's say that the market's hot for another 3 5 years and your your home price you're looking at right now is 500,000 it goes up to 750 in 3 years and then it crashes to 550 i mean yeah you're not winning at all by waiting in that scenario because it's crashed to a price that is higher than it is today and so that's kind of a like a, pheno- a math phenomena i think you need to wrap your head around with this stuff but i don't know if it's a good time to buy or not to buy I would focus on what you can control, which is having a great financial position, thinking through those exit options and maximizing them to the best of your potential. I am buying when you are ready, not trying to time the market because I think you can lose for so many reasons that you can't possibly predict. I mean, everything could go exactly as planned. You could have the best model of all time and the Fed drops interest rates yet again. Boom, prices explode. So there's nothing like it's it's what's going to happen. I I don't know. My guess, all that aside, what I think is going to happen this year is I'll probably I'll take an opposite stance to Mindy. I think interest rates are low. I think supply has been constricted for a long time. They're not building enough new homes in this country. I think material costs are high. I I don't know where you find labor to for construction labor to build these new homes at any sort of reasonable price. I'm sure that's a great business to be in right now. And so it you know where what's gonna what's gonna drive prices down? Mindy a rebuttal. <laughs> Pick the person that you want to side with and let me know. No, Scott has valid points. And the the thing that I am lacking is a crystal ball to see which one of us is right. But I think that we are both agreed on the fact that you should not just jump in because everybody else is doing it. You need to make an informed decision. You need to be comfortable with your purchase And if you go the mathematical route with Scott's approach, or you go the, what are we going to call my approach? The logical approach, the, the cautious approach, the conservative approach, conservative approach. It it, it doesn't mean that Scott is wrong. It doesn't mean that I'm wrong. It just means that we have differences of opinion and you should choose the approach that makes the most sense to you. The book is The First Time Home Buyer: The Complete Playbook to Avoiding Rookie Mistakes. I got a lot out of this book. I am not a first-time home buyer. In fact, I have also bought investment properties, but I think there's a lot of great information there. And it really drives home this point that, you know, they're the things we can't control. We can't always control the markets. We don't know what's going to happen. God knows no one knew a pandemic was coming. 
but there are many things we can control. And especially if you're a first time home buyer, there is a framework you can use to make sure that you make better decisions, which is going to improve your financial life, as well as hopefully provide you the shelter that you've been dreaming of. So I really appreciated you guys coming on to talk about this book. I want to end this episode the way I end every episode by asking you what's up next in your life and where we can find you. Mindy, I will start with you. What is going on? And if people want to know more, how can they contact you? What's up next with me is just more of the same. We have a new house that we are live in flipping. So I'm doing a little bit of work on that right now. We're in paint mode, which is always exciting, which we do ourselves because it's easier to do it ourselves than finding a contractor in this market. And I've got two kids that are in school. We're getting ready to do some local traveling. We're going to go up to like Rocky Mountain National Park and do some big hikes and start getting outside. It's the weather's beautiful today and we're really excited for some vitamin D. And Scott, what's going on with you and where can people find you if they want to connect? Yeah, I'm just kind of enjoying the slow reopening of the the city and now that it, it, it you know, the levels are starting to go down here in Denver. We've got a couple of road trips planned, my wife and I. You can connect with me on uh, Instagram at, at Scott underscore trench anywhere on bigger pockets. You can just find me um, hanging around the sites, posting in the forums or message me there. I know those are probably the two best places to find me. Mindy, any preferred ways for people to contact you if they have questions? Uh, I am on Twitter at Mindy at BP, M-I-N-D-Y-A-T-B-P. Also Facebook and Instagram at that same name, or they can email me Mindy at biggerpockets.com. And I'm all over bigger pockets. This has been the earn and invest podcast on behalf of myself, doc G. I wanted to thank Mindy Jensen and Scott trench from bigger pockets. That's a wrap. Hey everybody. Are you enjoying the conversations we're having every Monday and Thursday? Well, guess what? There's a place where you can continue having these conversations 24-7, that's right, seven days a week at the Earn and Invest Facebook group. That's earnandinvest.com slash Facebook. Again, earnandinvest.com slash Facebook. There we meet as a community to discuss finance, personal finance, the economy, what's happening in the news today, you name it. It's a fun place for us all to talk together and to be a part of our community. Join us there, earnandinvest.com slash Facebook. Also, I wanted to send a shout out to Fostering Joy. That's Heidi Dusek. She left us a review on Apple Podcasts. Let me read it for you. She says, bold and inspiring. I love that Doc G found his voice in this space and is willing to challenge the status quo and produce content to make us all think. While financial freedom is critical to lifestyle freedom, he also makes the stories and voice of his guests really thought-provoking and sometimes edgy things to think about. Grateful to have his voice in my life. That was from Heidi Dusek of the Ordinary Sherpa Podcast. Heidi, I really appreciate your kind words. This is a place for us to talk about the difficult financial conversations. My goal is to bring you guests that will enlighten and entertain you. That's what we want to do here on Earn and Invest. If you are enjoying the podcast, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this podcast. Also, tell a friend, invite them to the Facebook group, get the word out there. Let's make this community bigger. Thank you all for your support. See you next week on Earn and Invest. Awesome. Perfect. Did you guys feel like we got a bunch of stuff from the book out? Because I really wanted it. Because I thought you had such good content in there that I wanted to make sure we really pulled that out and and really talked about the book. I've talked talked to you fools enough about yourselves. I wanted to make sure we really talked about the book. I thought it was really good. I thought I, I, I had fun. Thank you. Yes, this was wonderful. And you asked some really great questions that we have not had on other shows. So I love when I get a podcaster who's asking questions that are you know, different from just the norm. I I appreciate that. And I really, you know, the, whenever I have someone on who has a book, I always read the book. (laughs) Like I know some people look at a chapter or two, et cetera, but to me, like 
you know, that's where the good stuff is. And you guys have a lot of really great information in that book. I mean, yeah, like I said, I've bought a number of houses and I was looking at the stuff going, oh, I, I probably should have thought about that. Like I should have been more thoughtful, certainly with my first home, but but with some of the later ones too. And I think it's nice to have it all in one place. Yeah, I oh. think it's, you know, it's not the end all be all, but I think it's it's going to give you, after you're done reading this book, you are far more informed about the process. Yes. And very absorbable. Like there was nothing that was like too, too difficult to get, right? You guys broke it down into kind of basic concepts. And I brought it up in the beginning, because I, I really do think it's important. This whole idea of having an exit strategy, I think is is revolutionary. And I just, I don't think people think of it in those terms. Um, so I'm really glad you put that in there, because I think it's somewhat controversial, uh, but also really on point. Well, thank you. How, how, what'd you think of the puns? <laughs> they were they were punny. No, they were they were good. Yeah, there were some good ones there. I'm just upset now that you weren't really making fun of Alex and Shelby. No, yeah, because we I know Mindy that. knows Alex pretty well, so I was yeah. convinced that you came up with those names for a reason. Now I'm, that's funny. I, I uh, now I'm I bummed. Would, yeah, <laughs> I do think Alex and Shelby would be uh, very good together. But I was about to say they're not a couple, not. right? They're just really yeah, good they're friends. Not, no, they're just yeah. friends. Yeah. Alex does some amazing photography stuff, man. He is quite the photographer and he just is, yeah. obsessed about it. I can't imagine what his, how many towers of storage he has of pictures because he'll just take a billion. Yeah. All right. Well, I'll let you guys get to your thing. It was wonderful as always hanging out with you. And hopefully as COVID lets up, we'll see each other in the same place at some point. <laughs> yes, that would be lovely. So, yeah. Okay. Thanks, Doc. Take care. Hi to Carl for me. Bye. I will do that. Bye-bye. You care about your money. Of course you do. So why aren't you listening to SoFi Daily? This podcast will keep you updated on the latest news in the stock market and how it could impact your financial life. Stay on top of what's happening. Listen to SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts. That's SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts. The corporate world is like the ocean. It's alluring, but it's also full of deadly creatures that can shred you to pieces. It becomes kind of like a Game of Thrones political arena where everyone's trying to murder you to get your job. My family doesn't come from corporate background, so I didn't have any sort of guidance in that. This is not your typical work podcast. Sometimes you need to be empathetic. And then there are times that you ask for input, but you don't really give a shit. <laughs> Listen to the Ambi Award-nominated podcast, Surfing Corporate. Stretch opportunity. What is this, yoga class? Get out of here. <laughs> 